competitive 40K network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hello and welcome to the Art of War 40K. This is episode 103. And we're, this is going to actually be a very, very special episode. I am joined by Mr. John Lennon and Mr. Nick Nanavati. Welcome aboard, both of you. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me again. I love this part. Yep. I always love being on the show one way or another. Uh, we told uh, John recently uh, when he was on his way to Lone Star Open to return with a shield or on it. And he came back with uh, several shields, weirdly enough. For those who don't know, uh, John was third in the ITC for the 2019 season. Best Space Marines in that same season. Best Tyranids in 2017. He has won Crucible 2019, Iron Halo 2020, Dallas Open 2021, and now Lone Star Open 2021. Uh, he is a former teammate of mine and a uh, ongoing mentor, uh, and I am proud to uh, call him a friend. Nick is a uh, former ITC champ, has won Adepticon four times, won LVO once, and has won uh, WTC twice on two different teams, and he is the founder of the namesake of this show, uh, Art of War. So I am just literally surrounded by some of the best minds in 40K right now. And we're going to really, really, really break down uh, John's recent uh, victory at Lone Star Open, which this episode is about. Uh, John, first and foremost, why don't you go ahead and break down your list from uh, top to bottom and tell us what you took down this uh, nine-round event with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for this event, I busted out uh, the Sisters of Battle, actually for the first time uh, taking them to an event, but I had been collecting Sisters for a while and getting some practice in, so I felt pretty good going into the event. But uh, my list was two detachments. It was a patrol of Bloody Rose and an outrider of Evan Chalice. That patrol had Morvan Vol, uh, five Battle Sisters, two units of five Zephyrim, two units of eight Repentia, and a, uh, a Repentia Superior. And then in my Evan Chalice um, outrider, I ended up having Saint Celestine herself, as well as two units of Seraphim. Those Seraphim were armed with hand flamers. Uh, I had two units of Retributors. Those Retributors had two Multimeltas, two Heavy Flamers, and two Cherubs in each. Uh, of course, I had two Rhinos to carry uh, those girls around. And I had two units of Dominions armed with four Stormbolters each. Then I had a Dogmata and uh, one unit of Celestine Sacrosynths, as well as, of course, my favorite meme in the game right now, the Battle Sanctum. Uh, this list is, you know, something that uh, Brad and I jokingly refer to as a Noah's Ark list because it feels like it has two of everything. Um, but the sisters' units came marching in two by two, and uh, the list just ended up being very flexible. Like I got some reps with it, I showed it off uh, on some stream games, got some practice in, and I felt really comfortable with it going into the Lone Star Open. All right, well, why don't you go ahead and uh, let's let's really start getting into the strategy and the uh, premise behind the list. I'm sure a lot of people might be familiar with uh, Bloody Rose. But some might not as well, and I'm definitely I'm positive that even less people are are sure what uh, Evan Chalice does. Uh, so why don't you break down uh, like some of the tech and the uh, like you know, like the relic and the CP choices and some of the actual like, units why you chose them because there's a lot of stuff here. I think um, especially if uh, players are only used to Eighth Edition sisters, there's a lot of stuff here that they may be wondering why you took this. What does it do? So walk us through the premise. All right. So the way that I kind of look at this is that if I'm going to take two detachments, I'm probably losing two or three command points uh, just by getting a second detachment here instead of just a single battalion. So I like Bloody Rose a lot. They're great for buffing my combat units, and I feel like combat units are mandatory in Sisters right now. 
So I knew Bloody Rose was going to be at least one of my detachments. If I was taking one, it would be a Bloody Rose Battalion or Brigade. And if I was taking two, it would be a Bloody Rose Detachment and something else. So now, if I'm going to be taking Bloody Rose and then losing two or three CP, Evan Chalice really makes the most sense here because Evan Chalice gives me a Warlord trait, Terrible Knowledge, where I can gain a CP back whenever I use, use one on a 5+. So at that point, if I'm losing three CP on this Outrider, but then I'm getting two or three back a game, I think two is a pretty reasonable number to expect with a five up to get back, then I'm already making up my cost and now I'm in a great spot. And I've just gained a lot of flexibility with access to Evan Chal Chalice uh, stratagems and units, as well as their Miracle Ice manipulation without giving up much on the command point front. I have to give a lot of credit here to Tim. Uh, Tim is one of the people who really helped sell me on Evan Chalice, um, especially after some you know rules interpretations came down with Argent Shroud. They kind of lost favor and uh, once Tim uh, pitched me on Evan Chalice, he told me he had played a game with it. I actually put it on the table myself, and I really liked how it felt. Um, so credit to Tim on uh, getting me started there, but I loved having access to Evan Chalice, and I didn't think that the command point cost was too high to pay. All right. Well, yeah, I, I'll be honest. I played a couple games with it, and the uh, extra range AP and uh, mortals on Flamers is definitely nothing to scoff at. Um, so I have a question real yeah, quick. Yeah, go for it. Um, what does Ebon Chalice do? It's one of those chapters we just never hear of. Everyone knows what Bloody Rose does. Valor's Heart's the other kind of popular one. A little bit of Martyred Lady, but uh, what, what is Ebon Chalice? Sure. Uh, Ebon Chalice is, um, to me, it's kind of like the value detachment of Sisters. It doesn't do anything super crazy that makes you think, okay, this is that detachment that does X. But what it does is uh, it gives you access to Terrible Knowledge, which is a world trait. Your first Miracle Die is a 6. It uh, also gives you a 5-up CP regen per CP spent. So you're, you get a little bit, probably about like 3 more CP on average throughout the game, I found. Uh, it also lets you uh, pretty much discard a Miracle Die, and the next die you use is a 6. Uh, John has described this as power slamming two uh, Miracle Dice together into a, uh, to basically make a 6, which is a good way of thinking about it, um, especially because the Miracle Dice generation is reduced. It goes a long way. Uh, the other half of their order conviction is you get to pick a second sacred right. And when we were testing this um, together, John and I, this is the part that actually made kind of a big difference because you take exploding sixes for Bloody Rose, but you take the um, the extra AP on ranged attacks, uh, wounds of six, get an extra AP. So your Seraphim sprinkle in a couple AP one shots, your uh, heavy flamer uh, Retribute sprinkle in a couple of uh, ignore cover AP two shots. Uh, and combined with the rain with the mortals from the Evan Chalice strat, which is flamers gain four inches and do mortals on force to wound capped at three per unit, uh, it really kind of creates a uh, a very mixed damage profile with the you know the meltas, the flamers, the AP regular, and then the extra AP and the mortals, and it, it creates a very complicated situation um, that's good against a lot of different profiles. That's really John. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Tim pretty much hit all of the points there. Um, Evan Chalice just had a lot of really useful tools where I don't think I really used them all in any one game, but starting out with a six in my pocket with the Warlord trait, getting a little extra command points, uh, extending the range of the Flamers actually really, really helped out there. Uh, I think one of the most undervalued changes when we started off with the Sisters Codex was the plus one strength in all their weapons. Uh, Seraphim going to AP, you know, dash on hand flamers was seen as a nerf because of the bloody rose change, but having played with it, going to strength four already made up for it. And then you have the potential to get some AP one there with Evan Chalice now. Uh, strength six on uh, retributors, absolutely massive. You know, we've seen 
Orcs moved to T5, Raiders moved to T6, and an influx of Toughness 3 bodies recently between Skitari, Dark Eldar, and Sisters. Uh, just that there's been a massive amount of profiles that Strength 6 is efficient against. So right now I'm really happy to have Strength 6 in my Heavy Flamers, and then getting to extend the range of that in Chalice, and you know what, sprinkling a couple mortals in, just already goes with the theme, uh, that has been very, very useful because it makes them just so much more efficient and so much harder to avoid. Uh, so that that really sold me on all of the flamer aspects of Abin Chalice. And then good Miracle Dice and Command Point manipulation as well made it feel really natural. And also, we forgot to mention, it pairs very nicely with the, uh, the Dominions as well. Having that Strength 4, 2 damage, um, possibly Mortal Wound weapon, it doesn't seem like much, but going to AP1 on a Strength 4 damage 2 weapon really helps it punch up a lot. And then you just this list just has the ability to say, hey, take four Mortal Wounds. You know, and the, that shooting output is very, very surprising. Uh, I do want to ask, um, because it's kind of like the elephant in the room, let's talk about the Battle Sanctum, how it really uh, helped you or hindered you in this, uh, in the Lone Star Open. And then in a, if you don't take it in a future event, what would you replace it with and why? All right, so, oh boy, the Battle Sanctum, uh, Castle Grayskull as we've been calling it. Um, the Battle Sanctum is such a weird unit because it's a fortification. And it isn't actually something that can be attacked. So it's placed down um, just kind of like a wall, and it, it's an area terrain piece. Um, all fortifications have to be placed three inches away from uh, any other terrain pieces and from any table edges. But a battle sanctum is a piece of area terrain that is light cover, uh, defensible, breachable, obscuring, and inspiring. So it gives sisters plus one leadership. It gives me an extra piece of obscuring terrain. And uh, the most notable part, other than obscuring, is that it unlocks an action that any uh, any of the units of my army can perform, or any of the infantry, that lets me gain a Miracle Ice at the end of the end of my turn. So I start it in my movement phase, finish it at the end of my turn. If I complete it, I just gain a Miracle Ice. I just need to have one infantry unit, which you know could be a character, uh, just in uh, the Battle Sanctum, uh, praying to the Emperor, and I get more Miracle Ice. Um, one of the you know note, one of the more noteworthy things about the the new Sisters Codex is that Miracle Ice got reduced in volume. And that also helped a lot with uh, Evan Chalice because Evan Chalice's ability to slam Miracle Ice together, um, it doesn't really work if you don't have a lot of Miracle Ice. You know, the best thing about it is that you can take a couple bad Miracle Ice and just turn it into a six. Um, there's actually some really nice synergy here with Evan Chalice and uh, a unit like Dominions, where my Dominions have a stratagem called Blessed Bolts, where every time I roll an unmodified six to hit, I, uh, I do two mortals. And then the attack sequence ends and it caps at six mortals. And what I can do with this is I can take a Dominion squad and they step out and they rapid fire someone in their near Morven Vol. So I make 16 attacks at half range. Uh, and if I roll two sixes on that, uh, I'm just going to do four mortal wounds. And if I happen to roll three, then that's awesome. I do six. But if I don't, I always save one of those attacks to the side. It's one of those tricks with sisters is you roll all your dice but once and then you decide if you want to make it a miracle dice. So if I roll 15, um, 15 dice, and I haven't gotten all three sixes yet to do my maximum six mortal wounds, I'll just grab two garbage Miracle Dice, and I'll ebb and chalice them together into a six, and I'll just get that last two mortal wounds in there. So the, the Battle Sanctum is really nice, not only because it's an extra obscuring piece, but it, it helped me get a lot more Miracle Dice to just play with. So I would have, you know, about four extra Miracle Dice a turn, and, you know, just having a two and a three sitting there usually isn't that useful. But on turn three, when I step out um, a Dominion Squad, and I'm, I'm blessed bolting something I need to die, I just grab those two extra Miracle Eyes, put them together, and I just guarantee get those extra damage without having to use one of the sixes that I would probably want to save for a Bloody Rose Charge. 
Now, the Battle Sanctum, one thing that we haven't really discussed about it is how big it is. I know it, it's so awesome, being that it's a huge piece of obscuring terrain. It's inspiring. As you said, it adds all these miracle dice, which you can use really well with Evan Chalice. And unfortunately, a lot of tournament formats don't really allow you to place it because the way 9th edition fortification placement rules go with the increased terrain density in 9th edition. And Lone Star Open, they're using player place terrain, which I guess allowed you to pre-measure a spot where you were going to put your sanctum and then just slap it wherever you wanted kind of thing. Do you think that's necessary or or do you think, how did player place terrain kind of impact your games and would you bring a battle sanctum in a different format? Yeah, so player place terrain was absolutely massive or uh, specifically the battle sanctum. Um, I think it really helped in general. I actually, um, I've been skeptical of player place terrain, but I, I thought that uh, the Frontline Gaming event here really ran it well, to be honest. Uh, because of the way that it let you control your own half of the table after you knew which side of the table you were on. That meant that you weren't kind of getting screwed by your opponent just leaving giant firing lanes in your own deployment zone to get shot at, which has I've seen happen before with player place terrain. This worked really well at Lone Star. And it absolutely let me leave room for the battle sanctum, which is why it was in the list. Uh, frankly, if I was going to a normal terrain uh, event where it wasn't player placed, it was preset, if I didn't know that a Battle Sanctum would fit, and in most events I'm going to assume it won't because it's a very large model, then I'm going to go ahead and probably not take the Battle Sanctum. As a matter of fact, before Lone Star Open announced their terrain rules, I was actually playtesting a version of this list that had uh, just a couple more bodies and an Inquisitor in it. And uh, when I ended up making those changes, I, uh, I added the Battle Sanctum, cut the Inquisitor, fiddled some points around to make it 2,000 points. But uh, you know, the big castle really worked well for me at the Lone Star Open. Were you still getting the same value out of Eben Chalice without a Battle Sanctum? It was definitely still worth it. What I found was that without the Battle Sanctum, I wasn't using the um, the ability to combine Miracle Ice into sixes because I didn't have as many. I was mostly just saving them for my uh, my Eben Chalice for my Bloody Rose charges, and then like a, a random six here or there for you know damage rolls on Retributors. Um, I didn't quite have the volume to play with, and that that's okay. Um, I think Eben Chalice was still very good. But the Battle Sanctum really helped them come into their own. So going back to your list as on the, the whole thing, you have, kind of as you described it, the Noah's Ark of Sisters, where you have two of every kind of good unit in Sisters throughout. What you don't have here is you don't have a lot of obsec. You only have one or two units of five just Sisters, or one unit of five. That's one unit of five regular Sisters, not much obsec at all. And then you have a lot of points in characters. You have, uh, you know, 450 points in Vol and Celestine, plus some support characters like the Mistress, the Dogmata, that kind of stuff. So do you find you had enough stuff on the board to play 40k effectively? I mean, obviously you did, but how did that work? Yeah, I really, I really felt like I did. So the obsec problem was frankly being solved by the Dogmata. Um, one of the Dogmata's abilities is that she gives obsec to a unit um, within six inches. Um, and now she was Evan Chalice, so she was only giving it to Evan Chalice units, to be clear. But um, that meant that she was putting it on the Sacrosaints, who were almost always parked behind the Battle Sanctum on an objective every turn. So I had Obsec on my home base, and uh, the Sacrosaints can heroically intervene if anyone gets close to them, so I, I felt pretty well defended at home. So one of the things that the Dogmata does that's really valuable is she can give Obsec to one unit nearby. She is only um, Evan Chalice, so she won't give it to any of the Bloody Rose units. But it's still really valuable to put it on something like the Sacrosaints, who are almost always behind the Battle Sanctum on one of my home objectives, really securing that. And uh, she can also put it on something like the Seraphim. I would often find myself deep striking Seraphim near the home base if I didn't have a good spot for them. And then the next turn, I would make the mob sick, they would uh, run out. And because they're Evan Chalice, I could actually just, again, take a couple garbage Miracle Vice, throw them together into a six, 
And now those OPSEC Seraphim are actually making good charges. And so it was actually a really good way to get OPSEC units just speeding around the board, piling in, consolidating, contesting objectives, uh, denying my opponent primary or getting my own stranglehold, uh, a secondary I took fairly frequently. Um, so that ended up working out very, very well. Um, the Dogmata herself, um, in addition to giving out OPSEC, she also has an aura that allows me to action and still shoot uh, with any Evan Chalice units within six inches of her. That proved to be valuable on a couple occasions when I was taking things like raise the banners because I don't have that many infantry units. So being able to action and shoot uh, came up quite a few times. As well, um, I really liked uh, just the chance that she provides. She has a relic called the uh, Sigil Ecclesiasticus, which lets her know and cast an additional chant. Um, and what ended up happening is that uh, she would put out War Hymn, which is plus one attack almost every turn. That's the default. And then I have two other chants that I can choose between. I could either give a chant that gives plus one to the, act, uh, the Shield of Faith Invuln, which is going to be a six up Invuln for most units or a five up for any of the, um, for any of the angelic units like Seraphim and Zephyrim. Or I can change uh, the, or I can add an act of sacred right to any unit within six inches. Again, I, I mentioned this before, but what's really useful here is that these, these chants and litanies that she puts out, these are not order locked. So while the obsec is order locked, she can apply war him to any uh, sister's unit. And uh, so I could put plus one attack on Celestine. I could put plus one invuln on Bloody Rose Zephyrim. I could uh, go ahead and change the, you know, add, an, add a sacred right, and I could give plus one advance and charge unit of Repentia that's about to advance and charge, even though they're Bloody Rose. Um, all of that worked together really well. The Dogmat is very cheap, uh, but she's a really good value character for what she does. Awesome. Um, and then also the Repentia Superior. She was not really seen a lot in 8th edition. Um, and then I know she changed a lot, honestly. They completely restructured what she did. Uh, why don't you explain uh, what she did for you, both generically, but then also in your list. I know you gave her a relic. Absolutely. So uh, the real value of the, uh, the Repentia Superior is that she has a command phase activation that she can uh, give to um, any repentance unit within three inches, not six, unfortunately, three, where if she targets them, they can advance and charge, and they roll 3d6 take the highest for their charge. Uh, if she targets a repentance unit, she herself will gain the same things of advance and charge and 3d6 take the highest. And then just as a, as a passive aura, she has a, an aura of six inches of plus one to wound with repentance. So you can still get some of the old buffs that repentance had, the plus one to wound, the advance and charge, she kind of lets, you know, new Repentia act like old Repentia, but because some of it is command phase locked, it, uh, it doesn't lend itself as well to Rhinos, which is actually why um, I don't have any Bloody Rose Rhinos. Um, I was kind of counting on the Battle Sanctum and Player Place Train to make sure that my Repentia would be in a decent position and wouldn't be exposed and shot at, but um, I could still advance and charge them, I could still be plus one to wound with them. And then, of course, I slapped a, a quick Relic on her as well, which was the, um, uh, the Litany's of Faith that lets me reroll one Miracle Ice Battle Round. Uh, because I knew I was going to be generating one every turn from the from the um, the fortification, as well as you know potentially killing some per phase and then some at the beginning of the battle round, I figured having the reroll would be uh, enough value. And sure enough, I was very happy that I had it. Awesome. Well, uh, that's all the questions I actually have about the list itself. Nick, do you have any before I, we move into uh, scoring? I'm really just curious how Celestine and Vol functioned in this army. I know like Vol is giving her buffs, rerolls everything to one unit and real ones in general, regardless of what order they are. But were you pushing these ladies down the middle of the table with the sacrosants, or were you kind of letting them just be a countercharge for you? What was the general flow for those? Yeah, so the army doesn't have to play that aggressively um, if it doesn't want to. And uh, certainly not early game, it doesn't have to. So usually Vol and Celestine were kind of floating around the, the front of my army 
being guarded by Sackerson so they couldn't be shot. They were a very good charge deterrent, stopping people from getting at me. Um, Vol actually functions kind of as like a character dreadnought that also happens to hit really hard in combat and provide uh, army buffs. Where for the first couple of turns, I was usually putting her reroll hits and wounds buff on herself. And I was just shooting, um, you know, crag missiles downfield at large blobs or crack missiles down at, at uh, vehicles. Um, I had a couple of games where um, turn one, Vol would just get me a kill and my opponent wouldn't shoot anything back. And that was just it. Just turn one, I hid my army, Vol popped something, got me a miracle vice. My opponent didn't fire back, and I, I held my primaries, and then my reserves started coming in, and the game escalated. So they're really good at slowing down the pace of the game because they just can't be interacted with. Celestine can stretch out and uh, tag an objective sitting near the Sacrosense. Now I get a midfield objective without being shot at. Vol gives herself rerolls and hovers in the back with the Sacrosense. She is now a counter charge that gets me one kill or a little bit of chip damage turn one, again, without being interacted with. It lets me get a little bit of momentum, a little bit of uh, something accomplished while I wait because the sisters list doesn't want to just deploy on the line and run at my opponent. I noticed a lot of your games, I was watching your stream in the last three rounds, a lot of your games you kind of chilled, basically played a very defensive, passive, chip kind of turn, like you said, with Vol basically doing most of the work um, for turns one, turn two, and then kind of letting your opponent take over the board, get ahead on the scoreboard, all that, and then explode outward on turn three and really just dominate the second half of the game. And oftentimes this will work really well with to the last. We'll get in your secondaries in just a bit here. But is that just generally the strategy with this army, that kind of reactive counterattack? Yeah, um, this army is really not designed to just, you know, destroy and table people and score 100 to zero. Um, it's very, very reactive because I can put a lot of units in reserve. It has a very small footprint. I have scout moves from the Dominions that go on the Rhinos. So I can adjust a little bit after I know who's going first or second on, you know, the Rhinos, which have retributors inside some of my most valuable pieces. Um, so it lets me be very conservative early, and I kind of have the speed and reserves uh, to get back in it. And also, if I generate a couple Miracle Dice without spending any for a couple turns, suddenly I have four or five, and now I get to do whatever I want with Evan Chalice, still have a good charge showing, have a good damage roll if I need it um, with Vol Cyclones Missile Launcher, or with um, any multi multas that get out, then I can put out a bunch of Mortal Wounds. It, the list can be very explosive. And uh, I was able to lure a lot of people into kind of trying to take over the board. And then the Sisters of Battle, you know, punchback uh, really got a lot of people on the chin. Nice, nice. So one last question while we're still on your list subject here. You, you talked about how you can put a lot of stuff in reserve. Obviously, the Seraphim and Zephyrim can just deep strike naturally. And you can spend CP to outflank stuff with a strategic reserve and have nice charges if you have enough Miracle Dice to pull that off. So how do you determine when to reserve stuff, what to reserve, all that kind of thing? Yeah, so usually I'll make that determination based on my opponent's um, ability to interact with reserves. So that'll be like how many cheap screening units they have, whether or not they have something similar to Auspex scan, um, and uh, just you know generally like how the player plays terrain has gone and what I can hide. So um, normally I would deep strike both Seraphim squads and one Zephyr unit. That way I had both a shooting and a close combat unit that my opponent had to screen against, because you have to screen those a little bit differently. Um, because the Seraphim have a 16-inch threat range on Deep Strike, thanks to the Evan Chalice uh, stratagem, it's no longer just throw out a screen and keep everything three inches behind it, like it would be if Zephyrm were to reserve. Uh, now they have to screen out a little farther, and that puts them a little farther forward for my on-the-border units to charge them, because I'd usually deploy at least one Zephyrm squad and then have the Repentia, um, who can potentially advance and charge. Um, I would, in a couple of games, if my opponent had indirect fire, I would spend one CP to outflank a Sisters of Battle squad and the Repentia. Um, 
uh, just to put them in strategic reserves and have them uh, arrive and do something interesting. Interesting. And I guess one final question, because I keep just coming up with more. Um, you don't have any of the typical two-man sister units that you see, like two-man crusaders, two-man death cults, any of that stuff, which people love to use at the higher levels of competitive play for doing actions, screening very cheaply, getting your turn one strangleholds or direct assaults, anything of that nature, just completing actions. Did you miss those? Is that okay that you didn't have them? How did how'd that feel? Honestly, I didn't miss them at all. Uh, the Dogmata letting me action and shoot um, with all my units. So my, my Ebon Chalice stuff would... Uh, Turn one, I would either action with characters, because most of the actions I took were ones that I could do with characters. Um, or, um, if not, then um, I would just deep strike in with Seraphim, action, shoot anyway, because I deep strike near the Dogmat and then just not charge. And uh, for actually just going out and holding objectives, um, the, the bodyguard characters were everything there. Celestine, or just running out a random character to die and then stand her up, uh, worked out very well. Um, I, I did that on a couple occasions where I didn't want to expose anything turn one. So I ran a random character onto an objective. They got shot. I spent two CP. They stood back up with one wound left. I got my primary, and then I ran back into my lines and hit for the rest of the game. <laughs> That's really cool. That's a sister's trick. I love using standing up the characters. Well, since I keep thinking coming up with more questions, you just keep spawning new ones after your answers. Um, one thing I love when I play sisters is my smash canises. You run canises with the warlord traits for real wounds. You get the relics, like the Blessed Blade Relic. I forget its name. Beneficence got nerfed a little bit, but they're all... You can make some smashy canises. You've skipped that entirely because your HQs are just Vol and Celestine, and they're a million points. So did you miss having those, like, 50-point, 60-point just nukes to run at your opponent that can stand back up? Honestly, not at all, because uh, Vol and Celestine hit harder than any of them. And then Celestine already stands up, and Vol just doesn't die. And uh, that just makes things easy right there. Uh, I actually did not lose Vol or Celestine at any point in the tournament. Um, I threw them into combat uh, multiple times. Um, I mean, we even saw, uh, you know, in one of my practice games against uh, Bradchester's Orcs, I, I ended my turn two with Celestine in my opponent's deployment zone, and she still made it out the other side to get me uh, 15 onto the last. Um, Celestine, especially when she's buffed by Morven Vol, uh, hits really, really hard. Uh, Vol's Warlord trait is to reroll all hits and wounds in combat, and she can fight twice. Whereas Celestine is, uh, has her Gemini for extra attacks, and with Vol, she'll reroll all hits and wounds. And between the two of them, they can murder almost anything. Uh, it's actually a little terrifying to watch them tear, just destroy units that you would not expect them to. I've seen you use the, the trick to use a 6 on a Miracle die for one of Celestine's to hit rolls, which will trigger an exploding attack, so you, Celestine just basically gets one more hit out of it. And do two mortals to your opponent. It's a very nifty thing. I remember, I think it was in the the finals against Sean Naden. You had Celestine with her, was it seven attacks, kill mm -hmm. ten shadow specters or something? Exactly. I gave her full rerolls to hit, sent her into uh, you know, into a shadow specter unit. And uh I, I as I said, I I usually will roll everything but one, and I'll keep one dice to spend a miracle on. And um I rolled uh five attacks, I rerolled my misses, and I got two sixes on it. So that was cool. And um, that was four mortal wounds and five hits. And then I was wounding on twos with no saves, re-rolling wounds. So I, I did five wounds, and that just left one Shadow Spectre left. So I just looked at it and was like, we're just going to put a six down and do two mortals. And that's a, to the last off the table. They didn't want to risk rolling a one and then re-rolling it into a one. It was just very simple. Put down the Miracle Vice, kill the unit. And that was it. Mm -hmm. Really nice, really nice. And if you want to see Mr. Lennon play Sisters uh, in that game against Brad Chester, he mentioned or some other ones. You can check him out in the world. We got tons of content in there with John playing this Sisters list at a very high level. Um, 
Nonetheless, though, let's get into your mission playing stuff. So you kind of alluded to how your army plays the primary with your characters just doing all the work over there. What about how you play secondaries? Which ones do you typically go for? Yeah, so I very frequently found myself taking either um, uh, Sacred Ground or Raise the Banners. Um, I actually found that I prefer those a little more than Retrieve Octarius data in most missions, um, just because I could get some pretty good points uh, out of Raise the Banners, and most people didn't want to come near me. Again, I have Heroically Intervening uh, Morvan Vol, 6-inch Heroic on Celestine. Uh, the Sacrosons can Heroically Intervene. And of course, to get close to a sister obje sister's objective usually means that you spent one turn in my charge range with Miracle Vice, and a lot of people didn't want to do that. Um, what I also would take is to the last in almost every single game. Uh, to the last for me is Morven Vol. It's Celestine, and it's a unit of nine Sacrosins. Uh, those nine Sacrosins actually come out at about 131 points because I uh, bought a, a Spear of Truth, I believe, for the Sergeant. And that made them cost one point more than my 130-point Retributors. And that is uh, that was very intentional. Uh, it let me just have my bodyguards, my two beatstick characters, be my to the last. And if people came, never came anywhere near me, I just kind of played the mission, scored good points, uh, you know, sent off a couple missiles to uh, contest their objectives at certain points, and I would just comfortably win by a few. And so people had to come fight me. And then, frankly, uh, there was usually a point in the game where Morvenval and Celestine were tough enough that I could send them off without them dying. Uh, they both have a 2-up save, a 4-up invul, and a lot of wounds, some damage reduction mechanic. Celestine stands back up, Morvenval um, has a 4-up feeling pain against mortals. They're both very tough customers, just, you don't just casually kill either of them, quite frankly. So I really, um, I really enjoyed making people get close to my beat stick characters because they were my to the lasts, and then I would just jump on them. And uh, every time uh, the girls came out on top. Um, finally, I, I take Stranglehold in almost every game, just because my list is built to deny people's primary by sending out units to contest. And by definition, once I go out to charge something and contest an objective, I am probably going to just claim it for myself at the same time. So Stranglehold was a very natural take. Um, I certainly didn't get a 15 on Stranglehold every time, but it was a very reliable 9 or 12 points, almost always uh, getting the 12 on Stranglehold. Uh, Raise the Banner slash Sacred Ground was... Um, was really one of the ones that I didn't take often. Um, I actually never took the Sisters Miracle Eye secondary. Um, I, uh, I never um, took uh, Defend the Shrine, uh, but usually I would either look at my opponent for a good secondary, or I would take a mission secondary, or I would take uh, Raise the Banner or Sacred Ground. Gotcha. So that, it's a, that's really surprising. I figured with the battle scenes, you would actually take the, the Miracle Dice secondary Leap of Faith a lot more often because you have those Miracle Dice to spend on them. What's, why didn't you? Um, quite frankly, it was it was just about um, how many times I would get to use it, and uh, it's about front loading my miracle dice when I want to. I didn't want to ever feel forced to burn them. Uh, one of the nice parts about Evan Chalice is that if I don't use my miracle dice, I can just slam a couple together later, and I can get really cool combos like extra mortal wounds, extra charges. Um, you know that that would just work out. Um, I always had it in the back of my mind as like if I need a a secondary and I just don't have a good idea, I would take it. But most of the time, I was comfortable taking to the last because it was the same secondary, and to the last, uh, it was the same category uh, to the last and um, and uh, leap of faith, and uh, to the last played a lot more into my game plan of waiting, scoring well, and making my opponent come to me, and then brawling a little bit. Whereas, um, you know, a leap of faith kind of made me burn my miracle dice at a pace, and I didn't want my own, I didn't want to change my game plan because of my secondaries. I love that answer, by the way, just because I know as an Art of War coach, whenever I'm talking in the worm or any of those things, 
I always give advice about secondaries and it's always to take secondaries that are in line with your game plan. You don't want to be going sideways to get engaged on all fronts if your plan is to sit in the corner. And like you said, if you have a strict plan and budget for your miracle dice, which it seems you do, you don't want to be told when to spend them and how to spend them by a secondary just to make your points work. Yep, exactly. All right, I wanted to ask a, uh, I guess, a question more for um, for those of us who aren't, you know, majors or GT winners and aspiring. Uh, we take this list and we put it on the table. What do you think are the biggest pitfalls uh, to someone who's kind of like in the medium tables or middle tables or just starting out? And because sisters and a lot of the T3 armies are a little bit harder to play, and there's a lot going on here. So if someone's just starting out or just kind of dipping their toes in, what do, what do you think would be the best thing to work on from a pilot perspective of playing this list? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the harder things with sisters is the temptation to go aggressive, where you have a lot of speed. You have some things that maybe look durable the first time you read it, but once you put it on the table, you realize it's not as durable as you think. Um, like, you know, a lot of people are tempted to just give everyone a four-up invul on, on all their sisters with, you know, uh, litanies and warlord traits, and it looks durable, but it, it isn't as durable as it looks once you play it. So I, I think that, you know, not exposing myself too early, not giving my opponent free things to work on, um, I love how small the footprint is of this army, where with the Battle Sanctum, I usually ended up deploying a squad of Zephyrim behind a wall, a squad of Repentia behind a wall. I set up my own wall with um, the Sacrosans behind it, and then all the characters sat by the Sacrosans, so I didn't care if they were in line of sight because they just could not be targeted, and then I had two Rhinos. So essentially there's a couple characters that can't be seen, an infantry unit behind a wall that I set up in the perfect position, and then I just have to hide two boxes and two small fast combat units, and that's it. And then my opponent doesn't have a lot to work with, doesn't have a lot to shoot, and I kind of will punish them if they get close to me. So the biggest temptation is to go aggressive, scout move your, your rhinos towards the opponent, get out, start blasting turn one, and as soon as you expose those units, they're going to get hit back, if you start losing resources too fast, it can be a problem. I would much rather slow down the game and still have a lot of units towards the mid-game when I can start to overwhelm my opponent. I saw you execute that exact strategy multiple times at Lone Star. And it's something that I think you and I both do pretty effectively is this patient, long, play the five-turn kind of game. A pitfall I see a lot of players make, especially in the mid-tables, Tim, is they do get too aggressive. So how do you how do you learn the tempo to the game? How do you basically just not throw your army away to try to win the game quickly or try to do heavy alpha strikes because your opponent has given them up. How do you have that discipline about it? Yeah, so um, I actually had to learn this with my white scars because I had some times where I went aggressive a little earlier than I needed to. Um, and what I learned was that anytime I'm about to make some kind of a play, I should look at it and ask myself if I can get away with doing it next turn. Where if I can scout move my rhino up and get retributors out and go blast a tank, Okay, I, I can definitely do that. I can shoot melts at it, and you know what? I probably kill it. Uh, but what if the rhino just moves behind a wall? Can I just shoot the multi melts at it next turn? Well, if my opponent can't kill the rhino, then then yes, I can just do this next turn. And now if I do it next turn, I have completed an action and I've gotten another miracle ice, and then I've started another battle round. And I've gotten another miracle ice, and my reserves are coming in at the same time. So now I'm I'm not exposing unit by itself, where it's almost certainly going to die. I can I can do it with numbers where not everything dies and I'll have more Miracle Vice and more command points, and I will have seen my opponent's, uh, one of my opponent's turns. So now if it doesn't work, I have less turns for them to punish me. And if it does work, I'm in the same position, but I just have more Miracle Vice. It doesn't sound bad either way. 
So that works really well if you're able to hide effectively from your opponent and just not take many casualties, which your army is designed to do. You brought your own terrain and you have bodyguard rule all over your unkillable characters. I, I get what you're saying here. But um, if you are getting outshot, maybe there's a powerful indirect presence from your opponent's list, or maybe the, the, the way your opponent's secondaries and primaries have fallen that he's going to beat you in a staring contest. If you're forced to act because external factors, be it indirect fire or staring contest or lack of terrain, whatever it might be, um, how do you determine it's okay to wait a turn, or do you then just get aggressive? Um, I think, uh, and we actually saw this in the final game, where I played against uh, Sean Naden. He had a lot of powerful Eldar indirect. Um, I, I think it was a very, very good game, very tight. Um, obviously, I was able to come out on top at the end, but um, I took one turn of being conservative against Sean, and he did a lot of damage with his indirect. Um, it hurt, but I, I knew that I wasn't going to get my whole army into him. But I, I figured I didn't need to. So I really was just waiting for the reserves to come in, where I took one turn of hiding a little bit, doing very small amounts of chip damage. Not much. He was hiding just as well as I was. Um, but I kind of made him come out to play the mission and screen my reserves. And once he did that, even though he wasn't screening with anything useful, I used that to get a lot of forward momentum. And what ended up winning me that game was a, a really pivotal turn three, where I landed reserves... And um, I was able to charge off of them to pile and consolidate onto objectives that I couldn't reach by charging. And I also got a lot of units to charge his screens and kill them, which got me upfield. And then I was basically in front of his army with still not a very tough army, but a relatively defensive one. All those characters are durable, and uh, the Saxons themselves are durable. And uh, I had some, you know, some, some sisters, some Repentia, some Zephyrim, and he had to deal with all of it at once. And unfortunately, he didn't deal with all of it at once. And once that happened, the characters took over. Um, he took his turn and did a lot of damage. I was able to hit back pretty effectively, get my kills. Um, I still had some rhinos poking around terrain, so I got units out once I had forced him to commit to the engagement. And that helped uh, take care of some of his screening units and like you know some characters that had fallen off by themselves. But the big thing was that it escorted Celestin and Vol into the center of the table, and they came out of that turn undamaged. And they were now close enough to really start hitting people. And one of those things with Celestine and Vol, um, Celestine is T3, 2-up armor, 4-up invul, and 6 wounds, minus 1 damage, and then has 2 Gemini. Vol is 8 wounds, T5, 2-up armor, 4-up invul, and half damage, 4-up against mortal wounds. There's a point in the game where they don't die, where I've removed my opponent's ability to kill them. Maybe in Sean's case, it was uh, Shadow Spectres and Dark Reapers, where once I kill enough of the things that kill them, they will not die, because I've been spending the game building up Miracle Ice. And one of my win conditions is remove my, abil my opponent's abilities to kill my characters and then get my characters into their army. Because if you're only doing a couple good saves on them a turn, I, I'll roll a few of them, I'll pass one, I'll fail one, I'll spend a command point and modify it into a pass, then I'll use a Miracle Ice to auto-pass a save, and all of a sudden, you know, three Laz Cannon wounds onto Celestine turns into zero failed saves because I rolled average. And that's not good for anyone. And suddenly Celestine takes over the game. So it almost sounds like your overall strategy is basically to deep strike in or, or have stuff in reserve, your Seraphim, your Zephyrim, that kind of stuff, maybe some outflanking Repentia. And with that, play a patient game because you know that's coming in either turn two or turn three. On those turns, your opponent is going to have to come forward a little bit to probably play the primaries, get engaged in all fronts, that kind of thing, but also to screen. So when he puts those crappy units out there to screen with, you can charge them 
kill them, consolidate after killing them, pile in and activate all these units that you charge, and also to catapult your cross, yourself across the table. And in the earlier turns, maybe trade your retributors and your dominions for whatever could possibly kill your characters. So then at the end, turns three, four, and five, they're just running amok through the table because they can't be stopped. Is that the basic premise here? Absolutely. Um, when I need to go aggressive into someone, either someone who can hit me early, like I can't just hide from them all game, that's almost always going to be my game plan. I had to do this against Adamek as well. My opponent had two Scorpius tanks with indirect fire, as well as uh, two um, two of the flyers, the uh, the gunships with uh, the Cognus Laz cannons. So I knew that if I just sat behind a wall and waited for three turns, uh, I, I knew it wouldn't work out at the end for me. So I, I had to kind of take one turn of taking it on the chin, and then I had to get through it, use uh, you know extra movement from charges to get upfield, and make it to the other side. And if I made it to the other side, I'd be in a fantastic spot. I mean, that really answers pretty much all of my questions. Tim, is there anything else you want to ask, John? Um, we kind of danced around it a little bit, but I want to hear a little bit, just before we move on, uh, talk about how this, this army plays the primary. I feel like a big part of it is, uh, you know, the interaction between the Sacrosense and Celestine and, uh, and more of Vol. So walk us through that, especially as the, uh, the game state kind of evolves, like turn two and turn three onwards, and especially on these uh, the missions where it's, it's hold two uh, objectives for five, you know, where the scoring is a little bit lower. Yeah, so what I usually will try to do is I'll try to pre-measure the Battle Sanctum before I deploy anything with player place terrain so that no matter where I, uh, I put it, I can have Celestine branch off from the Battle Sanctum and touch an objective. And I'll usually try to put the Battle Sanctum itself very close to an objective or even within three inches of it so that either the Sacrosense or uh, the Dogmata next to the Sacrosense or Vol next to the Sacrosense can hold that obje objective as well. So usually the Battle Sanctum and the characters and sticking off of it can get me two objectives. Now, Celestine is not obsec, so people can and did try to contest her objective. But um, Celestine Heroic, six inches. So usually if I plant Celestine, not even in the middle of the objective, just not, not just towing it just a little farther forward, Celestine can Heroic on any part of the objective. And now I'm in a fantastic spot. Basically, if, if Celestine's base is wholly on um, the objective marker, the objective mat, it'll just, she'll just cut her oak onto any spot of it. It's very simple. Uh, because she goes six inches, she can just reach any part of it. And that's it. My opponent now has to get Celestine in combat or do something very tricky to get on the objective. And it makes my opponent work a lot harder, dedicate more resources, uh, spend command points on things they didn't want to, whatever their answer of it uh, may be. Uh, it makes them put in more effort. And so when they couldn't, I got primary. And when they did, I got to kill them. And either I would go for strong primary early because my opponent couldn't get onto the objectives, and then I'd pull back, or I would go for middling primary early as my opponent threw things into the grinder, and then I would got a lot of, get a lot of kills and a lot of forward momentum and miracle dice. Um, and now towards the late game, I would get those dominant primaries. Um, as well, um, sisters are generally good at contesting primaries because I have fast-moving units that I can put OPSEC on to go contest things, or claim them, or have Repentia kill everything on it, and then it's just mine. Um, and a, a large part of that is um, I don't view primary as a race. I view it as a differential. So yes, theoretically, we could both get 45, but what I really want is to just get more than my opponent. So if I only end up getting like 25 points on the primary on, say, the scouring, that's okay as long as I keep my opponent to a 20 or 15 or less. And uh, that's, we played every mission once uh, because there were nine games this weekend. So on the scouring, that's what I did. I didn't get a great primary that game, and I ended up getting a fairly low score as a result. But I made sure that I was getting my consistent fives, and my opponent was getting 
fives and a few zeros. And that was enough to break the game open in my favor. All right, well, this was an extremely comprehensive episode. Um, Nick, while he was giving his answer, did you uh, brainstorm any other questions to ask or do you want to close, wrap it up and move on to uh, part two? I got one more to keep us here before we move on to part two. John, moving forward, if you can't bring the Battle Sanctum and, and with what you now know, having played Lone Star Open, is there anything you would change about your army or do you think you keep it pretty much the same? Yeah, actually, um, now that I've played it and I'm a little more comfortable with, um, with how the army plays, uh, because I, I did switch to Sisters relatively recently, even though I'd like to play them for a while now, I really like how they play. Um, I think I'm actually going to add a Warlord trait, and that's Beacon of Faith, if I'm cutting the Battle Sanctum. Beacon of Faith gives me one Miracle Ice that can only be used by the, um, by the character. However, it can be discarded for the purpose of Evan Chalice by anyone. So it can be used by the character or discarded by anyone because the back of the book specifically calls out discarding Miracle Ice not counting for using it. So in this case, I think that I can just uh, have the extra Miracle Ice that way to make Evan Chalice work because it felt so good having enough Miracle Ice to make it function. And I think I would also add either a Bloody Rose Rhino um, to help with some indirect matchups, which I'm sure we'll talk about in part two, and just to get Repentia around the field. Uh, or I may consider adding an Inquisitor for the potential to ignore Overwatch or even just uh, toss out a Bucket of Mortal Wounds, something like Eisenhorn that I don't have to spend a command point on uh, on his Warlord trait, he just at that point does 2d3 mortal wounds with some spells between Castigation and Smite, and he still knows Terrify if I need to ignore Overwatch. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, would uh, Beacon go on the Repentia Superior, I'm assuming? Yeah, uh, she doesn't have a Warlord trait right now, so it would just be very easy to toss it on her. Right, cool. Um, Nick, now, do you have any more questions? No, no, you got me. I'm out of questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we are going to wrap it up here. We are at the 52-minute mark, uh, and we have, man, I have learned... I played Sisters a bunch. Nick has played Sisters a bunch. And I feel like we have learned so much. Uh, even John, you know, the mastermind, has learned a ton. At his, nine games will do that. You'll learn a lot. Uh, if you would like to uh, learn more about Sisters and any other factions, um, you can join us over at theartofwar40k.com where we deep dive almost every single faction in the game uh, in a manner that you just heard. Uh, we do it via clinics, uh, strategy sessions, uh, list breakdowns, Meta Mondays, Math Hammer Clinics, you have it, we name it. Uh, you can find it over there. You can also go over there and sign up uh, to be a Patreon of this podcast. So you can listen to part two where we break down the matchups that uh, John played and is planning to play, especially some of the new factions like uh, Bellacor and New Orcs. Uh, so if you're not a Patreon, you're not signed up already, head on over to theartofwar40k.com and sign up. We'll see you at part two. John and Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Um, gents, uh, I will see you soon. And uh, I guess to everyone else, goodbye. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under, where we break down armies and new rules. Theartofwar40k.com. This episode was brought to you by the Competitive 40K Network. 